From Brennan to the Bocachil, from Lamy to La Push, and from the lordly Sawduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine. The climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 24, The Crimping King of Puget Sound. I know in the last episode that I mentioned that this new episode would be focusing on the South Canal scheme, but after looking at that script again and going through it, I realized that it just wasn't up to snuff, and so instead of scrambling to get those two episodes fixed and recorded, I decided to run with something completely different to start out the year. In light of this news, part two of the South Canal scheme will not be released next week for obvious reasons. So in its place will be a look at the history of Seattle's Ravenna Park. Sorry for the change, but it's for the best. Maybe someday in the future I will decide to look at those two scripts again and rework them to be better. But for now, I present to you the Crimping King of Puget Sound. Maxwell Levi was known as the King of the Crimpers at the flourishing port of Port Townsend from the 1890s until his retirement in 1910. Crimps or crimpers are those who force or entrap sailors into service against their will or while they are incompetent, such as while inebriated or under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Max Levi was the most important source of seamen to ships departing from the port. He was able to obtain them using a process known as shanghaiing. Men were sent to Shanghai when they were knocked out and placed aboard a ship bound for the Far East, which was the most extreme example. Levi acquired these men through various types of coercion for a period of 20 years before finally being convicted of a crime against them. He worked out of a boarding house on the dock that he owned and operated for sailors. Changes in the law, as well as the introduction of steamships, which required far fewer sailors, finally compelled him to abandon his lucrative enterprise. Upon retiring in 1910, he returned to his hometown of San Francisco, where he would pass away in 1931. Maxwell Levi was born in the California city of San Francisco on a date that has since been lost to time. He arrived in Port Townsend sometime in the late 1880s. As a result of his partnership with a man named Thomas Newman, he founded the Chicago Clothing Company. During the Klondike Gold Rush, he went prospecting up in Alaska where he met and married a woman named Harriet. After returning to Port Townsend in 1899, he quickly filed for divorce from her. Soon after, he married Lucy Hodge, the daughter of a local sea captain. They had one son named James Maxwell Levi, who was born in 1903 and was their only child. Lucy Sims became the wife of Ed Sims after the Levi's separated. Sims, a businessman and former deputy United States shipping commissioner, became a friend of Levi's. In exchange for Sims's financial support, Levi was able to purchase a stake in the New Sailor's Home, which was a sailor's boarding house and saloon in Port Townsend. Located on Water Street, close to the wharf, the boarding house was a popular destination for sailors looking to spend their money. Sailors would typically rely on the boarding house owner to cover them until the next time they went out onto the open seas. Sailors were accommodated by Levi, who recorded their indebtedness as a deduction from their salaries as an advance. When they were employed by the next ship's captain, the captain deducted the amount they owed and returned Levi's first before paying the sailor the remainder of their wages. 
In addition, captains were required to pay Levi a charge for each man they got, which could be as much as $50 a person. It is understandable that when a sailor learned he would be making the journey and working virtually without recompense, he would be reluctant to follow through on his commitment. That's when the practice of shanghaiing became popular. Levi devised a variety of deceptions, the most of which were unlawful to compel them to board. Levi also collaborated with Sims, who would turn a blind eye to Levi's attempts to sign up personnel for ships. According to legislation that was passed in 1895, those who signed up for work aboard a ship had to be completely conscious of what they were doing, i.e. not inebriated or intoxicated. Their signature had to be witnessed by the consul of the country that owned the ship, as well as by a maritime commissioner from the United States. Sims would allow men who had been brought before him to board the ship without a second thought. His boarding house was a lovely brick structure right on the water and he lived there with his family. A number of sailors who were just arriving in port took notice of it and chose it as a location to stay. Many were unable to pay for their housing, so Levi would provide them with a loan sufficient to cover the cost of their room and board. When a new ship arrived in port, the captain contacted Levi for assistance in supplying crew members. This agreement placed the sailor in debt to the ship's owner while also generating a substantial profit for Levi. Most of the time, Levi did not undertake his own dirty work. Afterwards, he stood back to collect the money, having given orders to his runners. To ensure that they received their quota of sailors, these runners did not hesitate to use force when required. When a man had too much to drink, they waited until he passed out before doing anything. Alternatively, if they didn't have the luxury of time, they slipped knockout drops into his drink. It was only when he was completely unconscious that they were able to toss him in a small boat and row him out to the waiting ship. By the time that he had awakened, he had traveled a long distance out to sea and was pretty much shit out of luck. The runners were quite selective in who they chose as their victims. They never shanghaied a Native American since, by that time, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was in charge of the vast majority of natives in the United States. If there was a complaint, the federal authorities would be there within hours to investigate. Levi was not interested in being any part of that. Runners also avoided picking up residents from their homes. If they couldn't locate professional sailors, they hired farmhands, loggers, soldiers, and even vagrants to fill the void. For the most part, a man's race didn't seem to make any difference at all. Levi's runners were notorious for a variety of reasons, but the most notorious was a man named Charles Gunderson. He utilized all means necessary to carry out Levi's orders, including bashing people into unconsciousness. Gunderson and his running partner, Chilean Pete, once sneaked aboard a British ship that was docked in the harbor. They proceeded to the port in order to persuade the sailors to desert, and Levi intended to recoup his investment by selling the runners to another captain for a profit. The runners, on the other hand, were apprehended before they could execute the transaction. Immediately after disembarking, they made their way to the rear of Levi's boarding house in their skiff, rowing as rapidly as they could. Fortunately, the ship's mate and boatswain were rowing after them in a small boat and were successful in catching them. Gunderson tried to knock them out with an oar, but it didn't work out. Chilean Pete was killed, and Gunderson was wounded in the shoulder when the ship's mate fired his gun. Following the shooting, a trial was held, but the jury declared the mate not guilty since Chilean Pete had been involved in piracy at the time of the shooting. Levi was prosecuted as well, but he managed to avoid being convicted since he claimed that he had not boarded the ship and that he had only been invited to do so by the crew members themselves. Levi's preferred strategy was to pay off one crew in order to get compensated for supplying another crew to the same ship in the future. 
He enticed the first crew away with promises of better conditions on another ship, which he was aware of at the time. The conditions would, of course, be no better and, in some cases, much worse. On one instance, he was successful in persuading three different crews to quit the ship America before the vessel was eventually able to sail with the full complement of crew members on board. One man who had been shanghaied on a ship to Hong Kong vowed to Levi that he would get vengeance on him. Two years passed before he was finally able to return to Port Townsend, where he made his way straight to Levi's office. He came across Levi, who was talking to two of his runners, despite the fact that he was outnumbered the man charged at them. It didn't take long for him to collapse to the ground, knocked out. Another Shanghai individual vowed vengeance on Gunderson. Gunderson was attempting to intoxicate this individual, but it was taking far too long. To bring him to the ground, he used a bar stool and then kicked him in the face. He then hauled him on board a ship that was heading for the Australian continent. The sailor made his way back to Port Townsend as soon as he was able to. He then confronted Gunderson and stabbed him seven times in the stomach. Gunderson was able to survive, but the tendons in his neck and arms had been severely injured. He discontinued his relationship with Levi and continued to work as a fisherman for the rest of his days. On the 11th of August, 1893, a significant event occurred. In the late evening of that night, a non-union seaman staggered into the Latona Saloon, which was owned by Max Levi and frequented by other sailors who were not in the Union. The sailor that came in had been attacked and beaten up, most likely by sailors that were from the Union. And he wasn't the only one there. He had been followed by a group of Union sailors and a big Union contingent had assembled across the street from the saloon. At first, the two groups were only making fun of each other, but after that, one of the Union sailors attempted to enter the Latona in order to get a drink. Levi came up to him and stopped him at the entrance. Gunderson and bartender Robert Kirk gathered their weapons and prepared to go to war with one another. The three gentlemen cautioned the Union members to keep away or else there would be severe problems. The Union men disregarded this warning and went inside the saloon in large numbers anyways. No one knows who was the first to fire a gun or land a blow, but it was someone. James Connor, a Union sailor, was shot in the right shoulder and the right hip while on patrol. Otto Anderson, a waiter, was slightly wounded in the stomach by a stray bullet while working. The noise had drawn the attention of newcomer Ricardo Guerrero, who was struck in the right leg as a result of the altercation. When Union sailor Joseph Dixon attempted to smash the window of the Latona, he received a cut to his arm. Every ground floor window of the Latona Saloon was eventually broken, and the interior appeared like it had been battered by an earthquake or storm. Eventually, the authorities were able to bring the unrest under control. Officer Brophy accompanied Levi, Gunderson, and Kirk to the jail in order to protect them from a crowd that was attempting to lynch the three men on the street. The following night, they were joined by many more who attempted to continue the battle, but were apprehended and charged with incitement to riot and destruction at the Latona Saloon. They were being held in a section of the jail that was different from the one where Levi, Gunderson, and Kirk were being held. Levi was charged with assault and was found guilty. Levi, Gunderson, and Kirk were represented by A.R. Coleman, an attorney with the Ship Owners Association of San Francisco in their legal battle. Coleman went on to clarify that Gunderson had simply fired a few warning bullets into the ground as a form of deterrent. However, when the Union guys chose to ignore it and went toward them, the three men were simply defending their own lives. Levi was not armed, according to two Union sailors named Ralston and Landstrom, who testified in court that he had just walked out from behind the bar to try to calm things down. 
However, the Union men had a different take on the situation. Hamilton Lewis and E.S. Lyons claimed that the victim had been kicked and beaten up without provocation by Levi. McGlynn and Benedictine, who represented the Union, also maintained that the brawl had not been a Union versus non-Union conflict. They claimed that a man had entered the saloon because he had misplaced his ring there two weeks prior. He had only gone in to demand the return of his ring, nothing more and nothing less. The altercation began after he was ejected from the saloon for simply asking where it was. The first trial resulted in a deadlocked jury. Levi was found not guilty by a second jury. The other defendants who had been accused with instigating a riot were likewise found not guilty. Some of the Union-related concerns were resolved shortly after that. On deep-sea vessels, the Union reached an agreement on compensation on deep-sea vessels, the Union reached an agreement on a compensation cut of $5 per month. Salary reductions were made in other areas as well. Similar labor battles appeared to have come to an end as a result of this. Following his release from jail, Levi immediately returned to his old tactics, shanghaiing sailors and robbing them of their money and belongings. He and his runners attacked a ship captain and one of his sailors because the captain had hired a sailor without Levi's permission. Levi took advantage of every opportunity to save money. He typically earned around $90 per guy, plus an additional $20 to cover the cost of clothing and other supplies that sailors would require while at sea. Once upon a time, Levi provided approximately 20 sailors to a British ship. However, the seamen were threatening to mutiny even before the ship could set sail. The problem was brought to Levi's attention by the ship's captain. Levi requested assistance from the British consul. For once, his strategy did not work out as planned. After speaking with each sailor individually, the consul discovered that the clothing provided was woefully insufficient. Some of the clothing appeared to have been rescued from trash dumpsters or off the bodies of dead people. Some of the items were even women's attire. When the consul found out about what Levi had done, he informed him that he would be required to provide the appropriate attire. Levi reluctantly agreed, vowing that he would never make the same mistake again. Early in the year 1896, he found himself in problems with the authorities once again. He shanghaied two men for the benefit of a British ship that was docked nearby. His runners, including Thomas Newman, rowed them out to the ship where they were able to stay overnight. As he was rowing away, one of the Shanghai men attempted to leap overboard in an attempt to get away. When Thomas Newman saw him jumping, he immediately went to his aid. He was beaten up by Levi as a result of these actions. Levi was arrested and charged with assault with a deadly weapon, but the charges would later somehow be dropped. In May of 1896, Levi and Newman were arrested and charged with taking the luggage of a sailor named Alex Von Hagen from a shipwreck. U.S. Commissioner James G. Swan heard the case, which was filed in federal court. Von Hagen's belongings were safely stored on board Newman's ship. Then he asked Von Hagen to sign a promissory note for $50, which he said he owed Levi for the accommodation and board he had received from him. Von Hagen rejected this because he believed the bill to be far too expensive in his opinion. Newman refused to release his luggage until he had paid the fine. Levi acknowledged that they did take the luggage. According to him, he would have cheerfully given it out to anyone who had inquired about it. All they had to do was ask. Swan dismissed the case after instructing an assistant to accompany them to retrieve the lost items. Levi must have been in a bad mood as a result of this encounter. After only a few days out of jail, he was involved in an argument that resulted in being thrown right back in. 
Levi approached a sailor named Charles M. Carlson, who was leaning over a railing outside the Red Front Clothing House when the incident occurred. He hit Carlson in the eye with a rock, causing him to lose vision. Levi had been accused of assault and battery, and a big crowd had gathered to witness his trial and eventual conviction. The matter was prosecuted by the city attorney. Levi was defended by M.B. Sachs. During his testimony, Carlson stated that the assault was completely unexpected and unprovoked. Three other men, William Debert, Eugene Thurlow, and Charles Weber, were walking down the street when Levi struck Carlson. They all witnessed this incident. They were unable to determine what prompted the assault or whether it was justifiable, but they were able to confirm that he was the perpetrator. None of them witnessed Carlson's retaliation. Levi appeared in court to testify in his own defense. Carlson, Levi claimed, was interfering with his boarding house operations. Carlson was standing in front of the Red Front store on the night that he hit him, and he decided to approach him and ask him about what he was doing. He claimed that Carlson kicked him in the stomach while they were conversing. When he retaliated against Carlson, he was merely defending himself. Carlson was believed to have struck first, according to two other witnesses. Carlson kicked Levi, according to Weber and Debert, but they did not see it. A decision by the jury was impossible because of the contradictory testimony presented. Apparently, Levi was supposed to be recharged, although it is unclear whether or not this ever actually occurred. In the month of January 1897, Levi made two unsuccessful attempts to sell a crew. The crew of the British ship Chiltonford was purchased from Levi in order to prevent competing crimpers from grabbing the sailors before the ship set sail. Levi employed Adrian Sheehan to keep an eye on the crew before the ship set sail. Sheehan then proceeded to make the crew drunk, purportedly in order for them to put up minimal opposition when Levi showed up later to sell them to another boat, according to reports. However, the captain of the ship was also keeping an eye on things and was aware of what Shahan was up to. When the boarding house workers arrived, he opened fire, scaring the men away and forcing them to leave. Levi only made a profit on one occasion that night. Men weren't always accessible. Even though some of the guys Levi gathered from a card game or a saloon were not sailors, he used them nonetheless. If the ship's captains asked for something, Levi didn't hesitate to give it to them without much thought. When Levi was tasked with finding a crew for the British ship General in 1899, the captain required 10 men, but there were none available in port, in part because of the great demand for ships heading to Alaska in order to reach Canada's Yukon River gold deposits. David Evans, a buddy from Tacoma, was called upon by Levi. Evans was able to locate five men, and Levi was able to locate another five. Only two of the ten participants had previous sailing experience. The remainder worked as farmers or in other various trades. The ship's captain didn't have time to be picky because he had a strict deadline to meet before setting sail. Fortunately, no damage was done to the ship before it arrived at its final destination. The practice of Shanghaiing came to an abrupt halt in 1906. New rules made it illegal for any runner, shipping firm, or steamship agency to hire a sailor who was under the influence of alcohol. It further specified that a seaman could quit the ship if he had good reason to do so by bringing his case before the Board of Commissioners before the end of the day. For failing to comply with the law, harsh fines ranging from $200 to $500 were levied against anyone who did not follow the rules. This law made it incredibly difficult for Levi to carry on his business as he had done previously. He did, however, continue to work in the industry for a short period of time, taking care to maintain a low profile.
In addition, when steamships began to rapidly replace sailing vessels, his business suffered even more damage. Fewer hands were required to handle these new ships, which resulted in an even greater erosion of his boarding house enterprise. Aside from that, the unions were doing a better job of preserving the rights of sailors. By 1910, Levi had decided to close down his operations. From 1912 and on, he and his family settled in San Francisco, where he would pass away in 1931. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a five-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include the Port Townsend Daily Leader, the Port Townsend Morning Leader, HistoryLink.org, the Seattle Times, City of Dreams, A Guide to Port Townsend by Peter Simpson, the H.W. McCurdy Maritime History of the Pacific Northwest, the Sea Rogues Gallery by Gordon Newell, and by Juan de Fuca Strait by James G. McCurdy. Thank you for listening to episode 24, The Crimping King of Puget Sound. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact History of the Evergreen State Pod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. There's calm on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Chimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing still a Guamish and the swirling skookum chuck and Moclips and Copalis where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. <laughs>